Hey, friends! Welcome to Talking by Myself. I'm your host, Layla Rosa. Okay, so here we are once again on another podcast. I am here in my closet, loving it. I learned that the clothes in my closet, according to my brother, he says that it helps actually kill the echoes. And you know what? He's right. I just never noticed that's what they were doing. I just thought, well, the only space I can do a podcast and videoing and recording and is my closet in my house because everywhere else is really loud. Yo, my parents are loud as shit. They're so loud. It's crazy. Like, I was like, wow, my parents are so loud that I think if somebody came over here, they would be scared. Like, because things are like, like all this crazy shit happened. That was me making noises. <laughs> that was me uh, doing an impression of things getting knocked around in my house. Like, like the fucking dishes is probably the worst. That's the loudest shit ever. Like, it's crazy. Like putting away dishes so loud. So I do them. So I don't have to hear the clinking. I'm like very sensitive to sounds, I think. I don't even know why. Oh, well, because I was hearing my mom talk to the cat and she was talking to the cat really, really loud when I was just trying to record here. And I was like, damn, that's so distracting. <laughs> so anyways, the clothes are supposed to kill some of the echoes. Unfortunately, they don't do anything about me not hearing sounds. I hope you guys don't hear those sounds. Yeah. Just hear the voices in your head. Maybe. Anyways. Um... I'm laughing. I think I think it was quite funny, actually. Laughing at myself. I'm sitting here in my closet. I have been just brainstorming about what are the creative projects that I want to be doing in my life recently. The last couple of weeks, I've been thinking a lot about that. What do I want to do? Like, what are the creative projects I want to do? How can I improve the podcast furthermore? I'm like, what can I give you guys more of? What, what do you want to hear? Like, seriously, like, yo, if you want to tell me on Instagram, or you can email me at talkingbymyselfpodcast at gmail.com. You can go ahead and let me know what you want to, if you're, if there is like something or if you have a question, I don't know, throw it out there if you like, if you have time. I know time is, is very precious. I totally respect that. And I thank you for actually giving me your time right now to listen to Talking By Myself. So I successfully finally updated my, uh, photo on Anchor and I'm really stoked that I did because now it's doing the photo that I wanted to put up for the podcast because I have different hair color now and I was like wow I really want to stay current and I like the photo I just caught myself kind of by surprise I didn't really intentionally pose that way I just thought it was like oh that's a great thing for talking about myself that's a great like photo very proud of my uh, closet video podcast photo studio that I've created. I'm in love, man. I wish I could be in here a lot more often. Unfortunately, I actually have to work a physical job. Y'all know that I'm doing i I'm a delivery driver for Amazon. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my, uh, 
a uniform that haunts me right now and as I'm doing this podcast because I'm in my closet. Yeah, so we've been being so damn busy. Yo, I think like Amazon's always busy though because people are always buying shit, which is why I have a job. You know, that's the truth. It's why I have a job. With that said, it is so exhausting. And I was just thinking like, man, I didn't even get to half the things I wanted to do last week with creativity. I was I was real feeling not very good. I was not feeling super physically good and I was kind of sad and shit and damn, I'm 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 feeling a lot more revived today. Goodness, I am. Um and I I actually went to the gym this morning too, which was really fun. I'm so glad I forced myself to go to the gym. <laughs> It was kind of like one of those days. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I was like, no, nah, I need to really like, kick myself out of my house and go to the gym and do something that makes me feel really good because I love physical movement. It it makes me feel good. You know, it's got so much positivity. They've done so much research on it for, you know, reducing de- anxiety, depression, helping with sleep, helping with just like overall emotional health, mental, physical health. Like it's got all these beautiful aspects Bodies are incredible, yo. Our bodies are incredible. Um, and speaking of which, about emotions, I'm actually going to share with you a bit later in the podcast about uh, this meditation teacher whom I am a huge fan of, I guess you could say. And also, I think he's really cute. And um, I just have to say that. Hopefully, he'll never listen to this podcast. I'm kind of embarrassed, but he's just like, just a beautiful man. And... His name is Oren J. Sofer, and I actually found out about him because of 10%, the app that I've been using for meditation, and he did these couple of courses. He did one on emotions and one on relationships, and it's just like the things that he's talking about are so practical and so like you can do it today. Like You don't have to be a pro meditator to like, or a Buddhist to like monk to like get these I hate when I get sorry guys that was a freaking spam call yo I hate that shit I just hung up on that guy one time a couple times I've answered though and it's been really funny I just like talk them in circles but usually I just hang up like I did I don't usually try to interact with those people because I'm like you know what I can't (laughs) I just can't I don't got the energy or time and who likes that dude who likes that shit it's like dude don't call my phone yo it's crazy ever since i got this new phone number like last summer i just get all these spam calls now and i get some crazy text messages like a lot of them about like making my penis bigger which i don't have a penis so it's not very helpful um but this this these are the what the texts are about about i'm not kidding like i actually should read an old text but i've deleted (laughs) i've deleted so many messages that i don't even have those texts anymore but it was quite funny when I first got it, just to be like, hey, Oren. It was it was weird. It was like Oren, not like the meditation teacher that I just talked about. It was like a different Oren. It was like, hey, Oren, uh, do you want to enlarge your penis? We have this new thing. I was like, well, stop. I'm not Oren, you know? I don't. I was like, what do I tell them? Like, I just said, stop. You know, you got nothing to say to people. Um, I'm laughing because that was very funny. So. <laughs> People calling me when I'm doing, trying to do a podcast. And another thing I wanted to mention was about emotions and nonviolent communication and all that wonderful stuff is um, you, ha- you probably do know I've been doing EMDR 
therapy and I just completed the questionnaire. So just got past that question part. Literally spent two sessions. So two hours answering questions about what, like where my trauma is coming from and like the events and stuff like that. So we can kind of compile like, um, like a game plan, I I guess you would say in order to actually start the reprocessing phase. And then there's like the, the phase after that, which is like how to deal with like stress and stuff like that. And like, what are your things that you have in your life that can help you have more ease? And I was like, well, meditation is one of them. Like it seriously has helped me and has continued to help me. And like, I really would love to do a formal retreat one day. I know that right now that's not happening, but one day I would love to do it because I think it would be really so cool to like get really immersive and like have to go and spend a whole week or whatever it is doing these practices because I just think it would be very, very helpful for me. I could see it having a lot of benefits. So, you know, this has all sparked so much interest for me in Buddhism and I'm definitely going to be researching more on that. But um, back to EMDR, kind of going everywhere here, guys. Stay with me. Guys and girls and whoever and they, love you all. Um, you know, it, it it's it's interesting because it was something that, like, it's terrifying, but it's like, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this EMDR stuff, so I'm going to do it. And, yo, it's worth it. It's so worth it for me to try healing, you know, try all these different methods. Maybe this might not work completely or maybe like something in the future will work. And there's a lot of studies on treating trauma. Speaking of which, I am going to share something that I've read recently in the Body Keeps Score by Bezel van der Klok. I'm not really sure how to say his last name, but it's, it's, he's very Dutch. He's, he's brilliant. He's the writer of the Body Keeps Score. Um, I'm going to read, I am going to read a part of that, that book today. I'm also going to read uh, from the Universal Christ by Richard Rohr, like we've been doing. And I'm going to share some stuff that from Oren J. Sofer, the Buddhist meditation teacher and author that I've just spoken about, kind of share some of his stuff and some of the stuff I found on YouTube. By the way, when I reference his video on YouTube, when I play his video, you're going to have to turn up your sound because it is so damn I don't know why. Like, I have my sound all the way up on my computer, and that shit sounds like it's whispering. So you got to turn it up, turn your volume up for him, and then turn it back down, because I'll be coming in real strong. But um, something that I've been thinking a lot about is content on this podcast. And something I actually was, like, thinking about that was quite funny was sharing how my high school was, like, my high school experience. And now looking back, it's quite comical. But at the time, it was really not funny. But when I was in high school, I actually worked as a stable hand. So I used to work at a horse ranch and I managed like 26 horses. And I was really, it was really not a cool job. Um, It sounds cool, but it wasn't. And here's why. Um, Not only was I like a shit slinger, you know, I was cleaning a lot of horse shit. A lot of horse shit. A lot. I was going to say every day, but it wasn't every day. But it was often. (laughs) Um, and I also was doing theater, so I wasn't really gaining gaining any cool cards. Um, it wasn't. And so I was like a shit-slinging, musical-singing, monologuing clown. I was like ridiculous. You know, I just like tried to be so cool, but I wasn't. And then meanwhile, there would be girls in my school, like, like example, like fucking, I don't know, some girl named Jenny. 
I didn't even go to school with Jenny, but like, we're just going to use her as an example. You know, she's like this blonde bombshell girl working at Starbucks. And then just like everything she does is so fucking effortless. And like all the guys are looking at her like, oh my God, look how hot she is. And oh, she's a pinnacle of coolness. And then, then, and then there's me like trying desperately hard to like clean my skin of the horseshit smell that somehow made its way under my fingernails. Like, even though I was wearing gloves, somehow this shit got underneath there. Like, literally, the shit got underneath there. And um, not only did I smell, like, not that great sometimes, even though I cleaned myself really hard in a spray perfume, I had a massive, I'm talking about massive fucking wart on my hand that got progressively bigger in high school. Like, I tried so many ways to treat it, and that shit just kept growing. I had to get it professionally removed. It was a very embarrassing thing. And so, like, I wasn't showing my hands, and I was afraid, I was, like, ashamed of, like, what I smelled like, and, like, uh, I was, like, living, like, these two lives, you know? I was, like, a shit slinger on a weekend, and then I I, I would be, like, all of a sudden this, like, wannabe cool girl, wannabe blonde cool girl, because I had, like, blonde streaks in my hair and everything in school, but meanwhile, like, I would let myself look hella crazy on the weekends and be cleaning poop and working my ass off to, like have this job, you know, to make ends meet. And, um, like, I, I also, like, had, like, really, I still do, I have really curly hair, and I would, like, straighten the shit out of that because I was so ashamed. Like, I was just, like, so, like, it wasn't cool. I wanted to be so cool so bad. And I would wear, like, all this eyeliner and stuff because that was, like, the cool thing to do. And if you didn't do that, you weren't cool. And I would, like, literally jump from character to character I would, like, be this, like, one person at school that I'd be, like, another person when I wasn't at school. And I was, like, oh, man, thinking. I was, like, yo, the kid, the cool kids cannot find out or they will make fun of me and call me names. And I was, like, oh, I can't have that. And also, I already had a nickname. Like, I really did. I had a nickname. It was uh, Lips. And it's because I had large lips on my face. Not the ones between my legs. I don't think they were talking about that. Maybe that. <laughs> maybe they were, too. I was too, too naive, naive to have known that, though. But yeah, I was, uh, I was actually, I wasn't really from here, Reno, originally. I was actually from Southern California, and I moved up here when I was in middle school. And that's when that name originated, Lips. And it was crushing, because I was like, I didn't want to be called that. I wanted to be acknowledged for myself. My name. My name. Layla. Not Lips. And it was so, so hurtful, and so, made me feel so sad and everything. And I thought, I'm never going to be cool. I have a nickname. Like, I can't get out of this nickname. Why do people keep doing this? All that stuff. You know, you're in high school, you're in middle school, whatever. And then I actually got to a point where I was, like, literally sucking my lips in when people were, like, not talking to me. Like, and I would just, like, try to, like, suck my lips in so they would look smaller so I wouldn't, like, be called names. And then, like, I would just, like, put tons of makeup on my eyes so I could distract people away from looking at my lips, like, calling me those names. And then, like, wouldn't tell people about, like, the fact that I was, like, a fucking cleaning horseshit on the weekends for my job. You know? I was really trying so hard to be cool. And then I was doing theater. You know? It's crazy. <laughs> and then I, I think, like, now, you know, I spend so much time, like, caring what people thought about me for so fucking long. For most of my life, literally, probably until, like, two years, like, a year ago, I think I stopped giving so many fucks. Because I gave so many fucks. I gave so many fucks away. That I'm like, yo, if I see a real motherfucker on the street and that, that person smells like horse shit or, like, they've been working, like, at a ranch or some shit, I know they're real. Like, I know they're not fucking around. They're a real person. Like, I know that. 
hands down. And honestly, I just feel like I can relate to them. Like, it's just natural. It's real, you know? And uh, and I think, like, yo, if you don't like the way I look, you don't like the way I, I what I do for my life, whatever. Hey, you, and you know what? Hey, I see a real motherfucker on the street. You smell like horse shit. I know you're real. And this is this is honestly my lit, litmus test now. Like, I'll just be looking for people on the street like, hey, you smell like horse shit. Yeah, I know you're a real motherfucker. Like, I'm not even kidding. So anyways, that's my story. That's real. That's some real shit. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of anger. I was really angry. <sighs> so angry. And, um, damn, I was a good actor. <laughs> All right. So on this segment of the podcast, I'm going to go ahead and introduce you to a meditation teacher that has been very helpful for me because he tends to focus on like emotions and communication and stuff like that stuff that I personally really need some help with understanding personally his name is Oren J. Sofer I found him because of the 10% app and it comes to come to find out he actually at one point was a child actor and I thought that was super interesting being an actor myself and there's lots more about him as a person that I haven't even like got in into, but what really stood out to me was his work. So I'm going to go ahead and give him a brief introduction. So this is Oren J. Sofer, and according to his website, this is what his little, um, I guess like what he does, his little work, his like little um, introduction is is to find clarity and learn to meet life's challenges with more balance through meditation and mindful communication. Author and meditation teacher Oren J. Sofer offers a unique and uh, pragmatic approach to contemplative practice. His work combining decades of formal training in ancient Buddhist meditation with more contemporary disciplines of nonviolent communication and somatics. So... There's a lot of words in here that really stood out to me. Like, I was like, wow, I don't know shit about Buddhism. Would love to learn. And I've been slowly kind of learning parts about it. Um, secondly, nonviolent communication is something that I did not grow up knowing. So he actually has a book that I probably will read eventually on that. Um, and then lastly, somatics. So as an actor, I have trained in somatic movement, so that stood out to me, and I've always been fascinated after that class of like how the mind-body connection and how our body literally holds all this information about our past and our present and the future, I would even say. So that is very beautiful, and it's a bit vague, I know, but let me go ahead and show you something I found um, on his YouTube page. Um and it's called, Why Do We Feel Emotions? So, I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I don't understand why why do I have these emotions. So here he goes. I'm going to let you guys listen.
Oh man, that's just like a such a brief introduction to what he does, but what a guy. What a guy, man. Oh, he's so cool. Check him out, seriously. Even if you don't get the 10% app, you can just go on his YouTube page and he's got like a ton of meditation stuff. I mean, he's got like stuff you can meditate to and he's got like talks and apparently he's talked at Apple and stuff like that and he does work in schools. Like, it's just really rad. It really is. So anyways, um... Wanted to share with you all that. All right. On this next segment of the podcast, I am going to read from The Body Keeps Score. And the subtitle is Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma, written by Bezel van der Klok. Maybe that's how you might see his name. Look him up. He's on Instagram and he's got a website and all that fun stuff. Okay. So this is from, it's about, I don't know, it's one of the chapters in the book. Anyways, it's page 92. I'll tell you that if you want to reference it later. Um, And the subtitle is, How Do We Know We're Alive? All right. So this uh, this is from Body Keep Score. Here we go. Most early neuroimaging studies of traumatized people were like those we've seen in Chapter 3. They focused on how subjects reacted to the specific reminders of the trauma. Then, in 2004, my colleague Ruth Lanius, I'm not really sure if that's how you correctly pronounce her last name, it's spelled L-A-N-I-U-S, who scanned Stan's and Utes Lawrence's brain. So that that was a couple um, that was, that had experienced a traumatic car accident. I'm just giving you that context. Okay, back to the book. Posed a new question. What happens in the brains of trauma survivors when they are not thinking about the past? Question. It's a question mark. Her studies on the idling brain, the, quote, default state network, or DSN, open up a new whole chapter in understanding how trauma affects self-awareness, specifically sensory self-awareness. 
Dr. Lanius recruited a group of 16, quote, normal Canadians to lie in a brain scanner while thinking about nothing in particular. This is not easy for anyone to do. As long as we are awake, our brains are churning. But she asked them to focus their attention on their breathing and try to empty their minds as much as possible. She then repeated the same experiment with 18 people who had histories of severe chronic childhood abuse. What is your brain doing when you have nothing particular on your mind? It turns out that you pay attention to yourself. The default state of act the default state activates the brain areas that work together to to create your sense of quote self. When Ruth looked at the scans of her normal subjects, she found activation of DSN regions that previous researchers had described. I like to call this the mohawk of self-awareness, the midline structures of the brain starting at um, excuse me, starting outright above our eyes, running through the center of the brain all the way to the back. All these midline structures are involved in our sense of self. The largest bright region at the back of the brain is the posterior cingulate, hopefully I pronounced that right, which gives us a physical sense of where we are, our internal GPS. It is strongly connected to the medial prefrontal cortex, the MPFC, the watchtower I discussed in chapter 4. This connection does not show up on the scan because the fMRI can't measure it. Uh, He's referencing a photo that he has in the book. It is also connected with a brain area that registers sensations coming from the rest of the body. The insula, which relays messages from the visceria to the emotional centers. There's a lot of scientific terms in this, guys. It's so hard. (laughs) The parietal lobes, parietal, I'm not sure how to say that, P-A-R-I-E-T-A-L lobes, all right, which integrate sensory information and the anterior cingulate, which coordinates emotions and thinking. All of these areas contribute to consciousness. The contrast with the scans of the 18 chronic PTSD patients with the severe early life trauma was startling. There was almost no activation of any of the self-sensing areas of the brain. The MPFC, the anterior cingulate, the partial, partial, maybe, P-A-R-I-E-T-A-L, cortex, with the insula did not light up at all. The only area that showed a slight activation was the posterior cingulate which is responsible for basic orientation in space. Sorry, I'm pausing because I actually am trying to see if I'm butchering this. I, I, I probably am, but I don't. You know what? Get the book, okay? Just pay attention to the most important part, which is the overall, overall story that I'm trying to convey here. All right. There could only be one ex- explanation for such results. In response to trauma itself and in coping with the dread of persistent long afterwards, these patients had learned to shut down the brain areas that transmit the visceral feelings and emotions that accompany and define terror. 
Yet in everyday life, those same brain regions, areas, are responsible for registering the entire range of emotions and sensations that form the foundation of our self-awareness, our sense of who we are. What we witnessed here was a tragic adaptation. In effort to shut off terrifying sensations, they also deadened their capacity to feel fully alive. The disappearance of medial prefrontal activation could explain why so many traumatized people lose their sense of purpose and direction. I used to be surprised by how often my patients asked me for advice about the most ordinary things and then by how rarely they found they followed it. Now I understand that their relationship with their own internal, their own inner reality was impaired. How could they make decisions or put any plan into action if they couldn't define what they wanted to do? Or to be more precise, what the sensations in their bodies, the basis of all emotions, were trying to tell them? The lack of self-awareness in victims of chronic childhood trauma is sometimes so profound they cannot recognize themselves in a mirror. Brain scans show that this is not the result of mere in- inattention. The structures in-, in charge of self-recognition may be knocked out along with the structure relates to self-experience. With Ruth, When Ruth Lanius showed me her study, a, fa- a phrase from my classical high school s- excuse me, classical high school education came back to me. The mathematician, Archimedes, Medes, something like that, something Greek, teaching about the lever is supposed to have said, quote, give me a place to stand and I will move the world. Or as a great 20th century body therapist, not sure how to say their name, but let's go ahead and say it, Moish, uh, or Mosh, maybe, and then his or her, let me see, this is a, I mean, I'm, it, it's not specified, so I'm going to go ahead and say they, um, last name spelled F-E-L-D-E-N-K-R-A-I-S, put it, you, can, you can't do what you want till you know what you're, to, whoa, 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 you can't do what you want till you know what you're doing. Wow, that was difficult for me. The implications are clear. To feel present, you have to know where you are and be aware of what is going on with you. The self-sensing system breaks down. We need to find ways to reactivate it. What? All right. Thanks for um, staying with me through all my stumbling and mispronouncing. Mispronunciating. Oh, my God. Mispronouncing. <laughs> this is the comedy portion, guys. Um, and girls and days. Um, this is a comedy portion. But all in all seriousness, that really spoke to me. Um Wow, it just explains a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And I think it has to do with what Oren was saying, too. It's all relating. All right, folks, we are going to move into the next part of the podcast, and we're going to talk about the Universal Christ Chapter 4. Okay, stay, stay tuned. I am going to go ahead and now read from the Universal Christ by Richard Rohr. And I want to say that, yo... If you don't feel like listening to this part of the podcast, that's fine. That's fine. I just want to be honest, though. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna read the whole chapter this time. Um, it's not too long, but I will be talking to you <laughs> for a while. So if you you have some time, you want to share, we can share it together. All right. So this chapter is called Original Goodness, and this is Chapter Four of 
the universal Christ. In the backyard of our Center for Action and Contemplation in New Mexico, a massive 150-year-old Rio Grande um, cottonwood tree spreads its gnarly limbs over the lawn. New visitors are drawn to it immediately, standing in the shade looking up into its mighty boros. Maybe that's not how you say that word. I don't know. Let's go on. An arborist once told me that the tree might have a mutation that causes the huge trunks to make such circuitous turns. His words are crazy. (laughs) And twists. One wonders how it stands so firmly, yet the cottonwood is easily the finest work of art that we have at the center, and its asymmetrical beauty makes it a perfect specimen for one of our organization's core message. Divine perfection is precisely the ability to include what seems like imperfection. Before we come inside, I'm going to go ahead and turn the page. To pray, work, or teach any theology, its giant presence has already spoken a silent sermon over us. Have you ever encountered like this? Have you ever had an encounter like this in nature? Perhaps for you, it occurred at a lake or by the seashore. For me, it's a sea for show, for show. Hiking in the mountains, in a garden, listening to a morning dove, even at a busy street corner. I am convinced that when received, such innate, innate theology grows up, grows us, expanding us and enlightening us almost effortlessly. All other God talk seems artificial and heady in comparison. Dude, I have to say that's true. Okay. Native religions largely got this, and he's going to give us some history up in here. Let's go for it. Native religions largely got this, as did some scriptures. See Daniel 3, verse 57 through 82, or Psalms 98, 104, and 148. In Job, chapter 12, verse 7 through 10, and and most of Job, uh, chapters 38 through 39, Yahweh praises many strange animals and elements for their inherently available wisdom. The, quote, pent-up sea. The, quote, wild ass. Not not our ass like a donkey, you, you, you crazy people out there. Um, I love you. But the, uh, quote, the ostrich's wing, reminding the humans that he or she is a part of such a greater ecosystem, which offers lessons in all directions. It is by your wisdom, God asked, that the hawk soars and spreads its wings to the south? The obvious answer is no. God is not bound by the human presumptions that we are at the center of everything, and creation did not actually demand or need Jesus, or us for that matter, to confer additional sacredness upon it. From the very first moments of the Big Bang, nature was revealing the glory and goodness of the divine presence. It must be seen as a... um gratuitous, yep, that's correct, gift and not a necessity. Jesus came to live in, in its amidst and enjoy life in all its natural variations and thus be our model and exemplar. Jesus is the gift that honored the gift, you might say. Strangely, many Christians today limit God-provident care to humans, and very few of them are at, and very few of them at that. How different we are from Jesus, who extended the divine generosity to sparrows, lilies, ravens, donkeys, the grasses of the field, and even the hair, the hairs of the head. No stingy God here, although he did neglect the hairs on my head. Oh, he's making some jokes. He's making jokes. He's funny. 
But what stinginess on our side made us limit God's concern and even eternal concern to just ourselves? That's a very good question. And how can we imagine God as caring about us if God does not care about everything else too? Even better question. If God chooses and doles out his care, we are always insecure and unsure. Very true. Whether we are among the luckiest recipients. But once we become aware of the generous creative presence that exists in all things natural, we can receive it as the inner source of all dignity and worthiness. Dignity is not doled out to the worthy. It grounds the inherent worthiness of things in their very nature and existence. Boom. Let's take a break right there for a second. Let's let that land. Some of us need that. I need it. I fucking need it. I need to remind myself of this shit. Okay. All right. Next part of the chapter is titled The Great Chain of Being. Saint Bonaventure from the 12th century, I do believe. Uh, well, it's uh, 1221 through 1274 is when this person has existed. Um, taught that taught that to work up to a living God, starting by loving the very humblest and simple things and then move up from there. That's a quote from him. Let us place our first step in the ascent at the bottom, presenting ourselves to the whole material world as a mirror through which we may pass over to God, who is the supreme craftsman, he wrote. And further, the creator's supreme power, wisdom, and benevolence shine forth through all created things. That is all from St. Bonaventure. Probably, I'm not really sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't know. Sounds French. I encourage you to apply the spiritual insight quite literally. Don't start by trying to love God or even people. Love rocks and elements first. Move to trees and to animals and then to humans. Angels will soon seem like a real possibility, and God is then just a short leap away. It works. In fact, it might not be the only way to love because how you do anything is how you do everything. As John's first letter says, quite directly, quote, Anyone who says he loves God and hates his brother or sister is a liar. That's John 4, verse 20. In the end, either you love everything or there is no reason or there is reason to doubt that you love anything. This one love and one loveliness was described by many medieval theologians and others as the quote, great chain of being. This is really interesting. The message was that if you fail to recognize a presence in any one link of the chain, the whole sacred universe would fall apart. It was really all or nothing. God did not just start talking to us with the Bible or the church or the prophets. Do we really think that God had nothing at all to say for 13.7 billion years and started speaking, speaking only in the latest nanoseconds of geological time? Did all history prior to our sacred text provide no basis for truth and authority? Of course not. The radiance of the divine presence has been glowing and expanding since the beginning of time. Before there was any human eyes to see or know about it. But in the mid-19th century, grasping for certitude and authority, the church was quickly losing its... Whoops. What was it losing? Oh, it was losing in the face of rationalism and scientism. Catholics declared the Pope to be the infallible and evangelicals decided the Bible was, quote, inerrant. 
we talked about that a couple podcast episodes ago, yo. Despite the fact despite the fact that we had gotten along for most of the 1800 years without either belief. In fact, these claims would have seemed adulterous to most early Christians. That is rad. Like that's rad and radical to think that like, this is like, Oh my God, so much has changed. It's just, ugh. why don't we know these things? Creation, be it planets, plants, or pandas was not just a warm up back for the human story of the Bible. I truly believe this too. The natural world is, the natural world is its own good and sufficient story if we can only learn to see it with humility and love. That takes contemplative practice, stopping our busy, superficial minds long enough to see the beauty, allow the truth, and protect the inherent goodness of what it is, whether it profits me, pleases me or not. Every gift of food, of water, every act of simple kindness, Every ray of sunshine, every animal caring for her young, all of it emerged from this original instinct and intrinsically good creation. Humans were meant to know and enjoy this ever-present reality, a reality we too often fail to praise, or maybe worse, ignore and take for granted. As described in Genesis, the creation unfolds over six days, implying a developmental understanding of growth. Only the seventh day has no motion of it motion of it. The divine pattern is set. Doing must be balanced out by not doing. In the Jewish tradition called the Sabbath rest, all contemplation reflects a seventh day choice and experience, relying on grace instead of effort. Damn, that's so good. Mm. Ooh, that's good. Full growth implies timing and staging, acting and waiting, working and not working. Let's read that one more time. Full growth implies timing and staging, acting and waiting, working and not working. Amen. There we go. All the other sentiments uh, begin, beginnings, being, excuse me, all the other, that's not what I'm, that is not even the correct word. All the other beings also do their little things, take their place in the cycle of life and death. Mirroring the eternal self-emptying and the eternal infilling of God and somehow trusting it all. As my dog, Venus, when she gazed at me, then looked straight ahead and humbly lowered her nose to the ground as we put her to sleep. Oh, that's very sad. Animals fear attack, of course, but they do not suffer the fear of death. That's true. We all, I mean, I've seen it in my, ugh, I've seen it in my animals. Uh, yeah, we've had a lot of animals, so I've seen a lot of that. Whereas many of whereas many have said that the fear and avoidance of death is the one absolute in every human life. If we can recognize that we belong to such a rhythm and ecosystem and intentionally rejoice in it, we can begin to find our place in the universe. We will begin to see as Elizabeth Baron Brown Browning that quote earth earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God. Okay, so that was one part. The next part is called original goodness, not original sin. Yes, let's talk about it, folks. Okay, here we go. The true and essential work of all religion is to help us recognize and recover the divine image in everything. It is to mirror things correctly, deeply, and fully until all things are known who they are. A mirror by its nature reflects impartially 
equally, effortlessly, spontaneously, and endlessly. It does not produce the image, nor does it filter the image according to its perceptions or preferences. Authentic, authentic mirroring can only call forth what is already there. But we can enlarge this idea of mirroring to give us another way to understand our key themes in this book. For example, there is a divine mirror that might be called the, quote, mind of Christ. The Christ mirror fully knows and loves us from all eternity and reflects that image back to us. I cannot logically prove this to you, but I know that people who live inside of this resonance are both happy and healthy. Those who do not resonate and reciprocate with things around them only grow in loneliness and alienation and invariably tend towards violence in some form, if only towards themselves. Do you then also see the lovely significance of John's statement, quote, it is not because you do not know the truth that I write to you, but because you already, because, but because you know it already. That is the first John, first John, uh, chapter one, verse 21. He is talking about an implanted knowing in each of us, an inner mirroring, if you will. Today, many would just call it consciousness and poets and musicians might call it the soul. The prophet Jeremiah would call it, quote, the, the law written in your heart, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, while Christians would call it indwelling Holy Spirit. For me, these terms are largely interchangeable, approaching the same theme from different backgrounds and expectations. I totally think we're talking about, I agree with him here because I think we're like all as humans talking about the same thing, but like we don't realize that we're talking about the same thing because we're like so in, like our egos pop in and like we need to be right or whatever. I'm just saying, I'm speaking from experience. Okay, we're continuing on here. In that same letter, John puts it quite directly, quote, my dear people, we are already the children of God and what we are to be in the future is still to be revealed. And when it is revealed, all we will know is that we are like God, for we shall finally see God as he really is. Or they or she or whatever you, whatever term you want to use. is It's all good. And who is this God that we, we finally see? Is it somehow being itself? For God is the one, according to Paul, quote, in whom we live and move and have our own being. As indeed some of you, some of your own writers have said, quote, we are all his children. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Our inherent likeliness to God depends on our on the object of connection given by God equally to all creatures, each of whom uh each of whom carries the divine DNA in a unique way. Owen Barfield called this phenomenon original participation. I would call it original blessing or original innocence or unwoundedness. Whatever you call it, the image of God is absolute and unchanging. There is nothing humans can do to increase or decrease it. And it is not ours to decide who has it and who doesn't have it, which has been most of our problem up to now. It is pure and a total gift given equally to all. Yes. Can we just please all agree on this? Can we just all agree on this? <laughs> that we're, we're all worthy like come on people sick of it but this picture was complicated when the concept of original sin entered the christian mind in this idea first put forth by augustine in the fifth century let's 
just acknowledge that as a recent ass thing that happened, but never mentioned in the Bible, we emphasize that human beings were born into sin because Adam and Eve offended God by eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. As punishment, God cast them out of the Garden of Eden. This strange concept of original sin does not match the way we usually think of sin, which is normally a matter of personal responsibility and, and, and other things. Yet original sin wasn't something we did at all. It, it was something that was done to us, passed down from Adam and Eve. So we got off to a bad start. By contrast, most of the world's greatest religions start with some sense of primal goodness in their creation stories. The GD, oh my gosh. Judeo-Christian tradition <laughs> beautifully succeeded at this with the Genesis recording telling us that God created good five times. Creation was God had said that creation was good five times in Genesis. Uh, that's Genesis chapter 1, verses 10 through 22, and even very good in Genesis 1, verse 31. The initial metaphor for creation was a garden, which is inherently positive, beautiful, growth-oriented, and a place to be cultivated and cared for, Genesis 2, verse 15, whereas where humans could walk naked without shame. Oh, can you imagine still living in that garden? Damn, that'd be nice. First of all, we wouldn't have to wear clothes, which would be pretty awesome. I've never been a fan of clothes. I'm, I'm just going to say it. It's true. It's just not that comfortable. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love fashion, but yeah, you know. And then you could have, like, awesome plants around you and just be happy and, like, walk with God and, like, be with all these people. That'd be freaking awesome. <sighs> Maybe that's just my fantasy, but I think that'd be awesome. All right, back to the book. But after Augustine, most Christian theologies shifted from the positive versions of Genesis 1 to the darker event versions of Genesis 3, the, the so-called fall, or what, I'm, or what I am calling the, quote, problem. Instead of embracing God's master plan for hum- humanity and creation, what Franciscans, cons- what Franciscans still call the, quote, primacy of Christ, Christians shrunk our image of both Jesus and Christ, and our, quote, Savior became a mere Johnny-come-lately answer to the problem of sin, a problem that we had largely created ourselves. That's a very limited role for Jesus. His death instead of his life was defined as saving us. This is no small point. The shift in what we valued often allowed us to avoid Jesus' actual life and teaching because all we needed was the sacrificial event of his death. Jesus became a mere pop-up exercise for sin, and sin management has dominated the entire religious storyline and agenda to this day. This is no exaggeration. Y'all know that's fucking true. You all know that's true, okay? Back to the book. In one way, the doctrine of original sin was vi- was good and helpful in that it taught us not to be surprised at the fertili- for frailty whoops, and woundedness that we all carry. Just as goodness is inherent and sake and shared, so it seems with evil. And this is, in fact, a very merciful teaching knowledge of our shared wound ought to be free us from the burden of unnecessary and individual guilt and shame and help us to be forgiving and compassionate with ourselves and with one another. There is usually a bright side to every poor theological formulation, if we are willing to look for it. Yet, historically, the teaching of original sin started us off on the wrong foot with no, with a no instead of a yes, with a mistrust instead of a trust. 
We have spent centuries trying to solve the, quote, problem that we are told is at the heart of our humanity. But if you start with a problem, you tend to never get beyond that mindset. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. From Augustine's theological, quote, no, the hole only got deeper. Martin Luther portrayed humans as a, quote, pile of manure, and John Calvin instituted his now now infamous doctrine of, quote, total depravity. And poor John Edwards famously condemned the New New Englanders as, quote, sinners in the hands of an angry God. No wonder Christians are accused of being of having a negative anthropology. The theological, the theological, oh gosh, theological, oh my God, I can't talk right now. What's going on, guys? I think it's because I'm talking so fast and so much. The theology of mistrust and suspicion has manifested itself in all kinds of misguided notions. A world always in competition with itself, a mechanical, magical understanding of baptism, fiery fiery notions of hell and systems of reward and punishment, shaming and exclusion of all wounded individuals, variously defined in each century, beliefs in the superiority of skin color, ethnicity, or nation. All of this was done in the name of the one who said that he did not come for the righteous or the virtuous, but for the sinners. Luke 15 uh, verses 1 through 7, Mark chapter 2, verses 17, and Luke chapter 5, verse 32, and to give us, quote, life and life abundantly, John 10, verse 10. This will never work, and it never did. When we start with a theolo- theology, uh, the la 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 la, that's what I was just doing right now when I was talking, trying, trying to talk and say theology, of sin management administered by a too often elite clergy we end up with a schizophrenic religion we end up with a jesus who was merciful while on earth but who punishes in the next world who forgives here but not later god in this picture seems whimsical untrustworthy even to the casual observer it may be scary for christians to admit these outcomes to ourselves but we must i believe this is a key reason why people do not so much react against the christian storyline like they used to instead they simply refuse to take it seriously To begin climbing out of this hole of original sin, we must start with a positive and generous cosmic vision. Generosity tends to free, excuse me, tends to feed on itself. I have never met a truly compassionate or loving human being who did not have a foundational and even deep trust in the inherent goodness of human nature. The Christian storyline must start with a positive and overarching version, vision of humanity and for history, or it will never get beyond the primitive, exclusionary, and fear-based stages of most early human development, we are ready for a major course of correction. Yes, 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 please, because I am tired. Everybody's tired of that. Come on. All right. This is now subtitled the holding, it's called holding on to a positive vision. Brain studies have shown that we may be hardwired to focus on the problems, on problems at the expense of positive vision. The human brain wraps around fear and problems like Velcro. We dwell on bad experiences long enough after the fact and spend vast amounts of energy anticipating what might go wrong in the future, also known as anxiety. Conversely and positively, conversely, positivity and gratitude and simple 
happiness slide away like cheese on hot Teflon. Studies like this one, like the ones done by the neuroscientist Rick Hansen, show that we must consciously hold on to a positive thought or feeling for a minimum of 15 seconds before it leaves any imprint on the neurons. Whoa, I gotta start doing that. I, I didn't realize that. That's actually the first time I read this part of the book, I think. <laughs> the whole dynamic, in fact, is called the Velcro-Teflon theory of the mind. We are more attracted to the problem than the solution, you might say. I encourage you not to simply take me at my word. Watch your own brain and emotions. You will quickly see there is a toxic attraction to the negative, whether it's a situation at work, a bit of an incriminating gossip you overheard, or a sad development in the life of a friend. True freedom from this tendency is exceedingly rare, since we are ruled by automatic responses most of the time. The only way, then, is to increase authentic spirituality is to deliberately practice actually enjoying a positive response and a grateful heart. And the benefits are very real. By following through on conscious choices, we can rewire our responses towards love, trust, and patience. Neuroscientists, neuroscience calls this neuroplasticity. This is how we increase our bandwidth of freedom, and it is surely the heartbeat of any authentic spirituality. Most of us know that we can't afford to walk around fearing, hating, dismissing, and denying all the possible threats and, and all the otherness, but few of us were given practical teaching in how to avoid this. It is interesting that Jesus emphasized the absolute centrality of inner motivation and in and intention more than outer behavior, spending almost half a sermon on the mount on this subject. See Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, uh, chapter 6, verse 18. We must, yes, we must make a daily and even hourly choice to focus on the good, the true, and the beautiful. A wonderful description of this act of, of, this act of the will is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 9, where Paul writes, quote, Rejoice in the Lord always. If you're tempted to write this off as an idyllic, quote, positive thinking, remember that Paul wrote this letter while literally in chains. You can see this in Paul chapter 1, verse 17. How did he pull this off? You might call it mind control. Many of us just call it contemplation. So how do we first see and then practice this original goodness? Paul gives us an answer. He says, there are only three things that last. Faith hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. In Catholic theology, we call these essential attitudes the, quote, theological virtues because they were a participation in the very life of God given freely by God or infused into us at our very conception. In this understanding, faith, hope, and love are far more defining of the human person than the moral virtues, the various good behaviors we learn as we grow older. This is why I cannot abandon an Orthodox or Catholic worldview. For all of their poor formulations, they still offer humanity a foundationally positive anthropology, even though many individuals never learn about it because of poor... I'm not really sure how to say this word. It's a Catholic word. I can tell you right now. I'm not sure how to say it, but it's basically their... It's like their virtues. I don't know. Anyways, and, and not just a moral worthiness contest, which is always under, 
under, which is unstable and insecure. From the very beginning, faith, hope, and love are planted deep within our nature. Indeed, they are the our they are our very nature. Romans chapter five, verse five. Romans verse I love this chapter. Romans eight is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, is verses fourteen through seventeen. The Christian life is simply a matter of becoming who we are already. First John chapter three, verse one through two. Second Peter chapter one, verses three through four. There's a lot of references. I got to say them. But we have to awaken and allow and advance this core identity by saying a conscious yes to it and drawing upon it as a reliable and absolute source. Again, image must become likeness. And even and even a good theology will have a hard time making up for bad anthropology. If the human person is, quote, a pile of manure, even the, even the snow, quote, the snow of Christ only covers it and does not undo it. But our saying yes to such implanted faith, hope, and love plays a crucial role in the divine equation. Human freedom matters. Mary's yes seemed to be an essential to the event of incarnation. That's from Luke chapter 1, verse 38. God does not come uninvited. God and grace cannot enter without an opening from our side, or we would be more mere robots. God does not want robots, but lovers who freely choose to love and return for love. And towards that supreme end, God seems quite willing to wait, cajole, and entice. In other words, we matter. We have to we have to, to choose to trust reality and even our physicality, which is to finally trust ourselves. Our readiness to not trust ourselves is surely one of our, our resurrecting, excuse me, reoccurring sins. Yet so many sermons tell us to never trust ourselves, to only trust God. That is far too dualistic. How can a person who does not trust himself know that how to trust at all? Trust like love is one of is one piece. By the way, at this point in history, trust is probably as much more helpful and descriptive word than faith, a notion that has become far too misused, intellectualized, and even banal. Banal. I'm not really sure how to say that. But you know what? I have to say that shit about trust because, like, the evangelical church will literally tell you fucking repetitively, don't trust your flesh or don't trust the heart is deceitful. Don't trust yourself. You can't trust your intuition. Like, hammered, 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 hammered into members of the church. And I know because I was one, like I'm telling you from experience people. And if you don't think that's true, just go look around and see how many times that's said. It's fucking true. And I think it's wrong. I think it's very, very toxic and dangerous and misleading. All right. Continuing on babies. Let's do this. In the practical order, we find our original goodness when we can discover and own these three attitudes or virtues deeply planted within us. First virtue. A trust in inner coherence itself, it all means something. That's faith. A trust that is, that is, that this coherence is positive and going somewhere good. That's hope. A trust that this coherence includes me and even defines me. That is love. This is the soul's foundation. That we are capable of such trust and surrender is the object objective basis for human goodness and holiness and is and it almost needs to be rechosen day by day lest we continue to slide down cynicism victim playing and making and a common self-pity no philosophy or government no law or reason can fully offer or promise us this attitude but the gospel canon does 
healthy religion has the power to offer us a compelling and attractive foundation of human goodness and dignity and shows us ways to build on that foundation. I mean, like, this is me now. Like, I totally agree with him. And, like, part of me is like, well, does it have to come from religion? Or, like, I don't know. There's just that part of me, like, that wonders that. But I also think he makes a point. Um, I'm not really sure how I feel on this, but I wonder how you feel, how you're all feeling on this. Thoughts? Send me, send me those thoughts, please. Send me them. Okay. Continuing on, we are almost done with this chapter, boo-boos. Let's do this. In every age and culture, we have seen regression towards racism, sexism, homophobia, militarism, lookism, and classism. This pattern tells me that unless we see dignity as being given universally and objectively and from the beginning by God, humans will constantly think it is up to us to decide. But this tragic history demonstrates that one group cannot be trusted to portion out worthiness and dignity to another. Our criteria tends to be self-referential uh, and thus highly prejudiced, and the powerlessness and, and, and the powerless and the disadvantage always lose out. Even America's glorious Declaration of Independence, which states that, quote, all people are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, has not empowered the white majority to, um, to a proportionate those, those, those rights immediately and equally up to now. Y'all know that's true. For the planet and for all living beings to move forward, we can rely on nothing less than an inherent original goodness and a universally shared dignity. Only then can we build because the foundation is strong and itself is good. Surely this is what Jesus meant when he told us to dig and dig deep and build your house on a rock. Luke uh, chapter 6 verse 48. When you start with a yes or quote a positive vision, you're more likely to proceed with generosity and hope and you have a much greater chance of ending with an even bigger yes. Try to build on a no is in the imagery of Jesus, try to build on a, excuse me, try to build on a no is in the imagery of Jesus to build on sand. Useless, basically. Um, if our postmodern world seems highly subject, subject to cynicism, skepticism, and what it does not believe in, if we now live in a post-truth America, then we quote, believers must take at least partial partial responsibility for aiming our culture in this sad direction. The best criticism of the bad is still the practice of the better. Oppositional energy only creates more of the same. All problem solving must be guided by positive and overarching vision. Whew, I would just wish like the politics and the governors and like all politicians and the gov government and all those people in power and like all the other systems that are in place in our world and culture and blah, blah, blah. I just wish that they would do that. That'd be great. That all problem solving must be guided by positive and overarching vision instead of just like arguing like we freaking do. We don't get anywhere. You know what I mean? Like it's not a conversation. All right, boobos. This is the last paragraph of this chapter and this will close out the podcast. We must reclaim the Christian project, building from the true starting point of original goodness. We must reclaim Jesus as an inclusive savior instead of an exclusionary judge, as a Christ who holds history together as a cosmic alpha and omega. Then both history and the individual can live inside of a collective safety and an assured success. Some would call this the very shape of salvation.
All right, my loves, that is it. That is the end of chapter four from the Universal Christ. Thank you for taking time to listen to this podcast. Time is precious. People are precious. Our world is precious. Treat yourself as though and treat others as though. That's my, uh, that's where I'm going to leave you all. Love you. Talk next week.